Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, the star and the namesake. That's Victor Davis Hanson. He is the Martin E. Lee Anderson Senior Fellow with the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Busky Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This is the final episode we do before Christmas. If you're, you leave the early before we get to the end of the podcast, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Um, Victor and I uh, uh, will be talking about a number of things today. Actually, Victor will do the talking. I'll ask the questions. We have a lot on education and the, and the university and academia. But the first question we're going to talk about is Japan and its um, move away from pacifism. And we'll get Victor's thoughts on why that's important right after these important messages. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, I saw a piece in uh, National Review. It's on the website. It's in the new issue of the magazine. It's called uh, Japan Abandons Pacifism. And for, for, for those of us who, I'm 62, you know, our whole life that Japan, it almost seemed, and I could be wrong on this, but the perception was that Japan treated pacifism almost religiously not more so than just the uh, byproduct of of war its defeat that it had to be pacifist but it seemed like that was part and parcel of what it meant to be japanese that had developed and developed quickly and here's japan though sitting next to the soviet union in north korea a, a, a hostile china and japan has now decided, probably long overdue, although maybe this was long in the works, Victor, to say uh, sayonara to pacifism and has begun a significant uh, rearmament effort. So 
this is seems quite important geopolitical stuff. Maybe I'm overstating it, but Victor, what are your thoughts about this? Well, it is important, but I think we should keep in perspective. I think they're going up to somewhere on two or two point five percent GDP, which is a lot for them. They were below one percent, but it's not up to three or four percent that we want for NATO. And it's probably not. I mean, we at one time we were four percent. I think we're under Biden. We've gone back down below, but. It is important, and the Japanese are very worried because of the fate of, uh, on the one hand, Taiwan not too far away from them, and Chinese encroachment there, the Chinese rhetoric that's coming out of Beijing that's anti-Japanese, the surrogate Chinese power, i.e. North Korea, that's sending, sending missiles gratuitously into Japanese airspace, the tension, the frenemy relation it has with South Korea, uh, it sometimes is a staunch ally, sometimes is uh, in, so embittered from the World War II treatment by the Japanese that it's that is hostile to Japan. So it's a very uh, tumultuous region now, and yet they're they're uh, they're much closer to us than they were in the 1970s and 80s with the so-called threat from Japan, Inc. They've got a lot of problems with defla- deflation. With They overreacted about the nuclear accident. They have problems with energy. They have problems with deflations, fertility. But So the fact that they're creating a robust military is pretty amazing, and they've got they even build a new carrier. It's kind of funny. It's called the Kaga. Remember the Kaga was, I think, with the Akagi right. were of the six. Uh, they were two of the most formidable of the six carriers that sailed or steamed 3,000 miles in late November all and early December all the way off Hawaii without breaking radio silence and kept the fleet together right. in stormy weather. And then those two, they were, I think they were built on battle cruiser hulls. They were huge. The Kaga and the Akagi. I think Akagi means, uh, red, red tree and the Kaga is <laughs> flower blossom, but the flower blossom. And that's their new carrier. They had no qualms about saying we're going to name the carrier after our distinguished World War II carrier that bombed the crap out of the Americans at Pearl Harbor. Uh, so they're, they're confident this came from the Abbey government uh, that made this big change, and they're they're looking toward closer ties with the United States because of a common fear of China, and because they're one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world. They're they're way ahead of people in things like drones and cyber. They're very good. So even though they only have a population, I guess, of 135, 140 million, and they're right up against 1.4 billion, the quality of Japanese arm—I mean, their arms will work like Toyotas and Hondas. So they're, they're, it's a it's a big asset for the United States if we know how to appreciate it, and uh, if we could get South Korea to drop its animosity in the modern period to Japan and to arm like uh, Japan, and we had Taiwan, then that's a pretty formidable trio along with Australia. Victor, is that animosity between South Korea and Japan um, strictly about uh, Japan's 
treatment of, of Korea during the Second World War, or has it? Are there other complexities? Uh, it goes to back it? before that. Korea was part of Japan, I think, until 1910. It had been colonized, oh, sure. yeah, conquered, right. and and then the comfort. It wasn't just yeah. It was the comfort women were. So right. uh, Korean women in general in mass were used as prostitutes, not prostitutes. That's an unfair word because they weren't paid or they weren't, it wasn't willing on their part. Right. They were called, I guess a better word would be sexual servants, slaves, slaves, yeah. slaves right. to Japanese soldiers. And then it was mined and exploited ruthlessly for its natural resources during World War II. And so that it goes way back. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know where how it, that relationship is now. But in the last four or five years, I think both sides have real. And Japan has apologized. Japan has given some reparations, but it's never really. Japan, unlike Germany, never really fully apologized. And uh, you know, Japan was. That's a whole different story. But Japan was never invaded and. It was occupied, but not through invasion and a post-occupation. And so it was never, there was never a, a bloody, horrific war on the homelands as it was in Germany. And although it was bombed in a way that was just devastating, not just the atomic bombs, but the fire rates. But anyway, that we have a peculiar history and so do the countries around Japan. But in the year 2022, they need to realize that they either stand together or they're going to die together. Uh, I mean, they're going to die separately, excuse me, because China is has got an agenda for all of those countries, and it's not good. And the United States, when they look at the United States and they see that we're in a neo-isolationist movement or we're $31 trillion in debt or we're borrowing a trillion and a half dollars in a year or we're into this woke madness uh, and they see what's happening in Iran and Russia and China. It's, I think they just kind of wised up and said, you know what, we're going to arm and take care of ourselves. We hope the United States is on our side and will be a strong ally. But if it's not, and it's got too many internal difficulties, then we can't, we can't rely on their security blanket anymore. And I think if North Korea keeps pushing it with these uh, missiles, and China keeps pushing it with their aggressive rhetoric, and they move on Taiwan, and you'll see Japan go nuclear. They could go nuclear in six months. They've got enough stored plutonium from their nuclear industry. And you know what? When they go nuclear, it's not like North Korea going nuclear, Iran going nuclear. I mean, they would make sophisticated nuclear weapons that were comparable to any in the world. Right. Well, Victor, moving on from uh, Japan, there's a lot of things academic, academia to get your thoughts on. Um, some have to, some of the questions we'll talk about or issues we'll talk about have to do with the decline in professorships across the board in the liberal arts, particularly in history. But let's get this started with your thoughts on the new president of um, of Harvard University. Uh, this is, there's a great piece I want to recommend to our listeners to find on a website called the Manhattan Contrarian. And this, I, someone sent it to me, but I noticed today, Victor was also linked to by uh, Powerline. 
Powerline blog, which I know you check out every every morning. So Claudine Gay, who's currently the Dean of Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard, will be replacing on uh, July 1st, uh, resigning or retiring President Larry uh, Bacow. I'm not sure that's how he pronounces his name. She has a, a a black belt in all things DEI at at um, at Harvard. She has quite a record of uh, taking on conservative or conservative leaning or let's say non-leftist professors at the university. The famous uh, case of uh, Roland Fryer, an economist who put out a study on 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 on, on uh, blacks in America that didn't toe the line properly on how the left wants blacks in America to be perceived or portrayed. Anyway. Is an ideologue uh, who is now the president of what many people consider the most prestigious university in America, if not the world. Your thoughts on that, Victor? Well, um, there's two things. One is specific to Harvard. So she was, um, I think, dean of the uh, faculty before, and she. I only came across her name because I don't follow Harvard Affair. She was the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. I think I came across her name because of this. Yeah, she was this brilliant uh, economist, Roland Fryer, African-American economist that we at the Hoover Institution for years had been interested in because he was, you know, and the article, as I remember reading it, included a quote from I think Glenn Laurie's that he was the best economist of that generation. So he was a big and he was beloved at Harvard. And then, of course, he did some research that found that there wasn't a systemic pattern among police of um, prejudice or violence toward African-Americans in custody and that or arrest. And that just enraged everybody because he was basically, through his research, undercutting the entire premise of the the current African-American academic movement. And particularly someone like Miss Gaze. And and what is that? That there has been such systematic racism that continues as a legacy of Jim Crow and slavery in the United States and will never end that repertory action has to be substantial, immediate, and forever, forever, because of the endemic and built-in racism and therefore African-American elites must be hired in disproportionate numbers to correct these pathologies. And then when you have someone who is African-American go along and say, my research doesn't show that, I'm sorry, then he has to be destroyed. And she was the point woman in destroying him. And how did they destroy him? They, And I'm doing this from memory, but as I remember, uh, somebody he fired said that he had systematically been harassing her. But when it came to finding evidence, it was something like, comments that he just said out loud, like, oh, I have a good strategy because this is how I got laid in high school. Ha <laughs> ha. I mean, it was off color, just talking. It wasn't, it was, you know what I mean? It was not sexual harassment. And, and a Harvard board found out that it was maybe irreverent or uncouth. And they suggested, as they always do, indoctrination, you have to go take sensitivity training. And then it was for some reason, bounced up to her committee, of which she was a very prominent member, and she wanted to fire him. And, of course, that was a little bit too much for the president, but they did suspend him, as I remember, for two years without pay. And 
she the, the irony of all this is she's an elite. So the idea that she's going to adjudicate oppression and racism, she went to Exeter. She went to every, I think, Stanford. She went to every, she was among the elite of the elite of the elite of any race, of any class, just the elite. And so that, and, and so she becomes an icon or metaphor that when you get people uh, from the so-called marginalized community that in their entire life has been defined as one of privilege, as defined by prep school, Tony universities, fast track, uh, promotions, hiring, etc. And then they are the arbiter of what's wrong in America and what is oppressive in America and what's discriminatory America. And it's based entirely on race. I would say to her, have you ever been to Tulare, California? Have you ever been to Carruthers, California? Have you ever been to Riverdale, California? Because I can show you a lot of poor white people that have never gone to college. They have no opportunity to go to college. They're dirt poor. They've never really um, advanced beyond the lower middle class. Their grandparents came from Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl. So race is not the arbiter, at least as you think it is, of poverty and oppression, um, even in discrimination, as you think it is. So my point is she would be very upset about a rolling fire because his disinterested research, and he has no... He has no advantage. There's no advantage to be an African-American genius and uh, boy wonder, if I could use the word boy and not in the the stereotype. The Batman sense. sense of, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the boy meaning boy genius. We use of everybody who, yeah, yeah. below 30 who's just right. has such potential and has done so much. And then suddenly to find uh, to engage in a research project whose results don't confirm the status quo of the affirmative action, woke, diversity, equity, inclusion industry, and then to still publish those results in the trust that people are classical liberals and disinterested and they will not object. And then to be essentially destroyed by uh, Harvard under the guise or the direction or whatever term we use of now, President Gay is pretty disturbing. And uh, this is a larger problem, Jack, if I could just detour a minute with these Tony universities, because I know that you and I have discussed the, this data uh, that the humanities and history, some of the social sciences that are really humanities like history and literature, if you look at their faculty tenured positions or the numbers of majors, they've They've suffered drastic declines, 30%. And what am I getting at? I'm getting at that the laboratory of wokeism in academia takes place at about eight colleges. These are the most influential. These are the people who train the professors, the Harvards, the Yales, the Princetons, the Stanfords, the Berkeleys, the Dukes. These are the, the universities that train the people that go to Iowa State. Are they train the people who go to Cal State Fresno? Are they train the people who go to Michigan State? But it's at those places that they can't afford to lose the humanities. But when they come out of these elite ivies and they are woke or they're still imbued with French postmodernism and they have this jargon filled 
vocabulary and their research is so esoterical and their po politics and ideology drive out disinterested research and teaching. And they are confronted with working class, middle class kids, and they try to indoctrinate them. Uh, we, we only look at the Antifa ranks and the people who are the AOCs who leave a Boston University indoctrinated. But that's the minority. The majority walk. They say, nope, not this pig. I'm not going to take this class. Or they just snooze in the class. And that's why majors are declining. That's why faculty positions that are based on full-time equivalent FTE are declining. So what I'm getting at is that the people who are destroying the humanities in these Tony universities are never subject to the consequences of their own ideology because there will always be a history department at Harvard. They can subsidize it. They've got a $50 billion-plus endowment. Same with Stanford. Same things happen to the Stanford history department. They become completely ideological, and when they train PhDs, those PhDs go out and they replicate what they were taught. But unfortunately, they don't have endowments where they're in, they end up teaching in large part, and therefore they ensure there's going to be massive cuts in their own field. So we're talking about collective suicide. If you want, if you're a young person and you want, you're interested in history, and you want to know, you know about the exploration of the Americas or the Civil War, or you want to know about World War II or classical Greece, you don't really want to sit into a class and have somebody say, uh, you know, the Civil War was really about false consciousness on part of white people and their need to atone for all the sins. And, and Harriet Tubman was the hero, not Ulysses S. Grant. You don't want to hear that. Or you don't, if you hear about you know, World War II, you don't really want to hear that the Pacific campaign at Iwo Jima and Okinawa was racially motivated and was uh, was, was uh, characterized by hatred of Asian people. And that's what these courses are. Or if, yeah. if there are those courses, but if they're not those courses, they're these esoteric, narrow dissertation topic spinoffs that these professors who are not broadly educated. So it's a rhetoric of gender, you know, I'm going to teach you about the rhetoric of gender or trans dressing in the Middle Ages, or I'm going to right. have a seminar in sexual ambiguity in the Roman banquet or something like that. And nobody wants to take them. So these IVs and these prestigious schools, they destroy interest in the humanities and history. And that's reflected in crashing, uh, descending faculty positions. Right. And lower general enrollment in general, and in particular, fewer majors, and the death of these disciplines altogether. But it's not going to affect the people who kill them. Kill them. Right. They've got theirs, and they've got it pretty well, too. I Victor, mean, we have, yeah, Princeton professor bragged that he thought classics should die. Mr. Peralta, I guess, is, what was his name? Daniel L. Was he also a classics professor? Yes. Yeah, he was a classics professor. and Suicide, he, yeah, right. Yeah, he said that, you know, he was one of the people who ensured that classics at Princeton uh, would not have a Greek language requirement. And right. so I think it was, um, um, his name came to me, Daniel L. Padilla Peralta, and he said he wanted the field to die. But when he means that, means that he means 
classics of a program, say, that I started with help from Bruce Thornton and others, and mm-hmm. now is very successful after I left, probably as successful or more successful, and it teaches mostly underprivileged people from the lower middle classes, many of them Hispanic, teaches them the value of Western Civ, composition skills, historical knowledge, classical languages. Well, he means that he wants that to be destroyed. But it won't, when they destroy classics, he just reinvents himself as a literature person and he'll have his tenure position forever. And, and so that's, that's how that, that operates. So it's really neat and funny and cute and chic to say, Oh, I'm a classic professor. I want to destroy classics. I don't want to want Greek. <laughs> I'm a suicide nihilist. Am I not cool? And then the real, that filters down to an assistant dean at Cal State Fresno or, San Jose State or Eastern Michigan saying, you know what? If, if they're going to destroy classics at Princeton, they don't think Greek should be. Why in the hell would we offer it here? Right. That, that's what happened. Well, the snapshot, one article, Victor, about, about on this topic from inside higher ed states that uh, between 2019 and 2022, uh, 1,799 historians earn their PhDs, and only 175 of them are now employed as full-time faculty members. That's part kind of, People should know. remember one thing about academics. There's a lot of things to remember. <laughs> but one thing they should remember, they, as, they are as right-wing and capitalist and self-interested in private as they are virtue signaling loud socialist in public. And by that, I mean the academic world is more exploitive of labor, whether it's graduate students or part-time teachers or untenured professors, than Walmart is of greeters. So Mm -hmm. you can make fun of Walmart all you want, but you can go to any university and see some poor woman our guy who's teaching five classes a semester at maybe $35,000 cobbling together at the mercy of the chairman each year to get the classes with no benefits. And then you can see the same class being taught by a full professor with tenure at five times the rate. Or you'll see a full-time professor at Stanford teaching two or three classes a year and a lecture teaching eight at CSU or nine or 10, 11, and, and graduate students teaching for very little pay, and no one cares. And that's what's uh, the class element at the university is never talked about, but there's more exploitation there than ever. And so what usually happens is full professors, endowed professors, tenured professors, in this new woke generation, they teach these narrow, esoteric, boring, dreary, commissar-like classes, and they destroy interest. And then they destroy it. And when they retire, they destroy that tenured position. And it's farmed out to part-time teachers at half or a quarter of the pay who are terribly exploited and will never get tenure and never get a full-time position. And we call that you know, academic liberalism or progressivism. But, and you wonder, you wonder about is anyone actually getting educated well under this no this rigmarole? Yeah, that's not the point. Is to t- educate right. somebody. Nobody in these universities and history departments, or very few, say these eighteen and nineteen year old 
students have a natural curiosity, or if they don't, I want to create one in the past, I'm going to give them two things. I'm going to teach them how to be inductive so that they look at the past and then they make a series of general conclusions based on that evidence, of which I will not interfere or try to change their opinions as long as they're not deductive. In other words, they follow the methodology of inquiry, you know, ex- like examples, diagnosis, therapies, prognosis in the medical sense. And I'm going to give them the reference, the dates, the facts, the people, the wars, the pieces, the depressions, the renaissance, all of the things that they need to make that inductive journey. And I'm going to teach them how to do that. No, it's I'm going to teach them very narrow fields. And these fields are going to be uh, ripe fodder for deductive transformation and who they are. So they're going to start out naive and i'm going to tell them just how awful i can select passages from history and teach them in such a way and grade their papers in such a way that they're going to agree with me that this is a racist homophobic protectionist nativist awful place and in in particular in the west in general and that's my duty to to graduate or produce legionnaires in the global cosmic war against the west Right. And that's what they do. They say they don't, but they do. And the students, it doesn't matter what I say on a podcast. It doesn't matter all of their stupid little apologies they print and, you know, letters to each other on the Internet. All that matters is students are walking and uh, positions are disappearing. I wrote over this, you know, well over 1998. And so it's been 25 years ago, John Heath and I wrote Who Killed Homer? And it was about the suicide of classical language. And I think, with all fairness, that everything we forecast has taken place. Although I didn't quite, and I don't think John did either, anticipate that Princeton University would eliminate the requirement of Greek language to be a classics major. I didn't think, or that a right. tenured professor that's very influential would argue that classics should be destroyed, or one of their most brilliant scholars, uh, Joshua Katz, they would systematically go out and try to destroy him personally, professionally, uh, because he wrote an article just suggesting that when people take over a dean's office and won't leave, they're acting in a terrorist fashion. That's where we and yet, are now. And yet, Not, there are conservatives who give money to these institutions still that's because a whole they, story. And I, yeah, you're, a, you're a conservative out there, and you want to save education, then don't take a gasoline can of your money and pour it into a burning inferno at Stanford or Harvard. If you insist on doing that because you're an alumnus or you think that you, it'll help one of your relatives get into that campus or they will honor you, then try to be as specific as possible. Say, I will give a million or a half million or a hundred or 20,000 to this particular program under these conditions. And when you do that, you will be severely ridiculed probably by the development they'll say well we don't really need we can't do that or we can, but you have to insist on it and if they don't do that you'd be much better giving it to hillsdale college 
a place like that. Hillsdale College, I can guarantee you, I've taught there 20 years, that if you call up their development office and you say, I'm worried about Western civilization and I'm worried about the teaching of history and I'd like more civic education, they will sit down with you and say, there's this program, this program, this program, this program. Here's the faculty. Here's the curriculum. Here's the name of the courses. Here's the books they order. Here are student reviews. If you want to help this program, here are some of the suggestions that the program thinks that would help them and you can give as you feel fit. And I right. can guarantee you donor intent will be honored. It really yeah, will. And, and Victor, uh, transcending in the case of Hillsdale, transcending the actual institution for people who wish to help education, where probably needs the help earlier on. Uh, they have created this um, classical school model, which is spreading that's significantly over the and country. And that's that's uh, another place for people to show their uh, philanthropy. Absolutely. The Hillsdale Academy model is sweeping the country. And of course, the schools of education hate it. If you really wanted to really reform edu higher education, I have a piece coming out tomorrow in American Greatness, about 10 things that could save America. It's probably, by the time you hear this, it's been out. But one of them is you could really just say to school boards and to state school boards, I should say, that you should pass one law. If you're going to pass any laws on the state level, just say, if you want to teach in K through 12, you do not need a credential issued by a school of education. You need a one-year master's program in an academic subject. And so if you are a pre uh, third grade teacher and you could get a math master's in math or you could get child development, whatever it is, but it would have to be an academic subject and not a woke indoctrination from the school of education. And that would, that would make a, a big difference. It really would. And that's and not not outlaw the credential. Just say you get a choice. Right. Just like you do it, you know, a parochial school, you can have a, a teaching credential or you can have a nap master's and most of them sometimes just a B.A. J.C.'s. It's it's you can get a master's. You don't need a teaching credential to teach at a community college. I don't understand that. Why you have to have a credential to teach a high school senior. And that has to be from an education department. But. Six months later, you can teach him in a much in a at a community college, and you don't need a credential. All you That's need crazy. is a master's. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. Well, Victor, there's more on things academic to discuss, and I, I believe you've got something about a Cornell University you want to discuss. But we'll get to that right after these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, 
The learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I want to encourage our listeners to visit victorhanson.com. That's the official website of, of uh, Victor. It's um, where you'll find links to all his appearances. He, you know, he's on other podcasts and other, you know, occasionally there are links to his Fox appearances, which is typically like two or three times a week. Uh, all his uh, work uh, for our American uh, greatness, uh, links to his books. But there's a lot that Victor writes that is exclusive for victorhanson.com. Those are articles are called Ultra. You will not be able to read them unless you are a subscriber. And if you're not a subscriber and you've been listening to this podcast for a while, for whatever reluctant reason you've had, just get over it. Take the five bucks. That's all it costs to, to get an initial you know, toe in the water and do it. Subscribe. And you're, you're going to see so much wonderful material that you just, Victor's wisdom that you just can't read anywhere else. It's the only place you can read it. And then you'll, you'll subscribe. The full year subscription is $50. $50. Um, maybe you should, you should give it, give it, think about giving it as a gift too to somebody you know who's a, a big VDH fan. So that's victorhanson.com. And as for me, Jack Fowler, I write a free, weekly email newsletter called Civil Thoughts. It shares a dozen to 14 recommended readings from that I've come across the previous week that I think it's 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 uh, written to, it's addressed to Dear Intelligent American, which is an old Bill Buckley line. But hey, there are lots of people out there that you know want to be informed of worthwhile articles uh, on culture, not necessarily about politics, but culture. Um, so uh, give the link, give give an excerpt. There's not there's no purpose here other than sharing worthwhile information. There's no list building. There's nothing transactional. How do you get it? Civilthoughts.com. Go there, sign up. And it's produced by the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. So, Victor, a few more things uh, on this right before Christmas edition of uh, the Victor Davis Hanson show. Uh, you you had mentioned before we, we uh, started recording that there was something about uh, Cornell University that you wanted to uh, bring up. What, tell us about it. Well, this was, it's about either demanding as the new school in New York, I think it's a university, private, you know it better than I do, left wing, it was 10,000 or so students. Right. It's, it's just typical of a left wing university, 50,000 plus for tuition. But the students have demanded that everybody get an A grade. And Cornell students are, are demanding an end to, uh, letter grades pass. And this is a growing phenomenon in schools. And if we just stop there and I'll put a little dash and I want to distinguish how this is different than the sixties even. When I went to University of Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz, um, I was on a waiting list to get in. I mean, I thought that was the best place to go. My parents wanted, my brotherhood was there. It was very, very hard to get into. And I did not get in. I had to wait, even though I had a whole year of advanced placement. But 
you know, I had, I think, a 3.95, but Salma High School was not competitive. Most of the kids that were let in from prep schools and places in Los Angeles, top schools. But my point is this, when I got there, finally, I, I was let in uh, almost the last week of summer when somebody declined and they took me. But this is what, I, there were no grades. But it was so hard to get into, it wasn't really a dumbing down because the professor had to write an evaluation and they could be, I read some of the evaluations. They were absolutely brutal. So you got to pass or fail. If you didn't come to class, you didn't take, they failed you. If you did the minimum, you got to pass, but then you had a page evaluation and they could really either enhance or detract. And and they were pretty tough. And, you know, I, I got a, I took a senior political class, uh, science class from a, a a very left-wing professor, and I was only 18 and kind of arrogant and stupid, and it was it was massive reading. It was about 2,000 pages, and he would turn on the radio so we could listen to Radio Beijing, and he would translate from China, Chinese to us, and he would talk about China's Communist Party was a model for California, all this crazy stuff, and I would write, you had to write five essays in 10 weeks. It was just a lot of work. And he wrote in his evaluation, I can still remember it. This is it's kind of obsessive, isn't it? It's 50 years ago, Jack. Kind of. Go ahead, yeah. though. And he gave me a pass and he wrote, uh, Victor Hansen is a first year student who should not have taken this senior political class. He was warned and the results confirmed my admonitions. He has an ability to write well and pose interesting questions on assigned topics. But the conclusion from my reading his five papers is his analyses are typically thin. <laughs> thin. And uh, wow. that was pretty devastating. And I yeah. remember when I went to graduate school, somebody read that and said, wow, were you stupid or what? Mm. <laughs> A professor was kidding me about that. But my point is that it was very, in, in those days, schools that, that used SAT scores and GPAs and they had a mechanism. It wasn't just everybody passes. And when it was, when Santa Cruz blew up in the, the late seventies as a difficult place to be admitted and it radically expand and the standards were lax. Guess what? They got rid of the pass fail. And so now they went back to grades, at least until recently. But my point is that this is the logical culmination of what we've seen in the woke trajectory, because once you went in the 1980s to proportional representation or proportional admit admittance, and that is you determined arbitrarily that this group is marginalized and that group is marginalized and this group is marginalized and therefore we're not going to apply uh, the SAT minimum score or mean score or the GPA mean average or low uh, minimum average to this particular group. And we're going to take this other group and this other group and deny them admissions that more than qualify because we in our saintly goodness want a diverse student body. And then you trump that 80s paradigm in 2000. 2021 20, and 22 by repertory admissions when you said, ah, it's not just enough 
that 12% of the student body shall be African-American or 10% shall be Latino or 2% shall be Native American. They To make up for past discrimination, maybe these uh, spoil systems should be increased by 3 to 5% for each grade. Of course, we won't tell anybody that. And then we have to take even a greater bite out of white males, to take one example, and perhaps Asians. Okay. And then you do this. And then what? Well, the problem is that you're not addressing the problem of a lack of parity in the sense that if African-Americans SAT scores or GPAs are not competitive with, let's say, Asian-Americans or they don't meet minimum standards, then the problem was back in K through 12. So what you would do if you were intellectually honest and you really wanted to rectify the problem, you would insist that K through 12 be competitive, that you have private charter schools, academies, parochial schools, offering competition to the public schools in the inner city of Chicago or the inner city of Baltimore. You would want different paradigms, some school uniforms with mandatory Latin. But the point would be we are going to produce schools that are competitive with Andover or the Menlo School, and we can do it if we, and then you would not have to do any of this because the African-American student at six would have an education that was competitive with anybody else. You could do that, but nobody wants to do that because that's hard and it's easily caricatured and you'll be called all sorts of names. So you just wait to do it on the back end. But then what happens, Jack? So you've got all these students coming into Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and they have not on uh, standardized test or GPA f- performed at a level of the other students under the traditional requirements. So something has to give, right? Well, the first thing has to give is the individual faculty member then is got crosshairs on him because if he starts in a German class or a Latin class or a physics class or a calculus class to grade entirely on performance in class, and we, he has 25% of the students have not met the statistical entrance requirements of the past that were pretty, whether you like them or not, maybe they were unfair or maybe they were biased in the sense that kids that had money went to camp and, and studied the SAT. But whatever the reason, at the back end, they were a pretty good determinative who had computational and reading and writing skills to do level at this expected level of work in college. Okay, so what do you do if you're a professor of these courses and you start giving C's to, you know, just C's, you you look at, you don't even look at the name on your um, papers, you just correct them. If you're in a social science or humanities or you're standardized multiple choice in physics or math, and you notice at the end of the semester that the names of people getting C's are disproportionately maybe uh, of a marginalized community. And you keep doing that. And the new ubiquitous, what, diversity coordinator, the, the assistant provost, the dean, the special assistant for diversity, equity, and inclusion says, ah, this professor and that professor are racist because they have a systematic bias that's revealed in the percentage of people who don't get good grades 
based on their race, based on the percentage who do get good grades. And if they argue that they're just using standards, I will contest that because the standards are warped. They are racist. So how do you solve that problem? You solve it either two ways. The faculty capitulates and said, I'm not going to die on the altar of standards. I'm 45 years old. I'm tenured. I have a good life. You think I'm going to get on the wrong side of these student groups and call me a racist and ruin my career? So I'm just going to give everybody C, uh, either give them all C's or give them all A's. And that transfer, enough people have done that. So people at the new school said, we all want A's. We, we demand that everybody get an A. And that's one of the student demands. Or they they grade, a few of them grade according to what people earned. And then that enrages people and said, I, you know, I, I was in Lenin, this university, and I had all these hopes to be the first in my family, and I'm doing all this. And Professor X gave me a C and just crushed me, and it was on so unfair, and there were racist things. I go back and I remember now, and her mannerisms, her way, they were racist, they were sick. And, and so we don't want any grades, but this isn't because it was very hard to get into a university and everybody was pretty qualified. And I want to say in my, to be in all candor, when I got to, to University of California at Santa Cruz, it was a new school experiment. It, I think, failed. This experiment failed. But at that moment, it got the, the top students. I, I did not have the competitive education that kids did. Uh, from a rural high school. And when I looked at what they had read and their math classes, I had good teachers, but it was nowhere near the level of preparations. And for the first year or two, all I did was stay in my room and study 18 hours a day. I got the flu. I just got, I didn't have a social life to catch up is what I'm saying. In other words, I, it was very hard. So I am very empathetic, but as a result of What's happened, the admissions policies, you know, the faculty is going to have to adopt no standards and give everybody good grades as the students at the new school want. Or the alternative is a school at Cornell, that paradigm, and that is everybody gets no grades. And I don't think they're talking about evaluations. They're just talking about pass or fail. And so then what happens? to end this conversation. So then what happens? So you're an executive at Google and you're woke and you've got a student uh, applying from, let's say, Stanford Electrical Engineering and they have all A's or all B's and you've got a student applying from Cornell that's got all passes and you've got a student applying from Georgia Tech that has all A's. And you and your little devilish mind, you think... I'm not going to bankrupt this company and have coders who can't code or uh, computer science designers that are not. And I can't trust the Cornell system. I just don't trust it. I don't know what that pass or fail means. Or I feel that the Stanford degree now is so woke, I'm not sure that I trust those grades. But back there in Georgia Tech, they still grade according to what you produce and their admissions policy reflect it. So that's happening. And if we continue down this trajectory, I think what's going to happen is, uh, and this, you mentioned Jack, this Manhattan contrarian article, and he pointed out in reference to President Gay, if we continue down this, people are going to say, 
okay, the Ivy League is back where it was in the early days when it was kind of a social network and you were rich or aristocratic and you got into Princeton or Yale, but it wasn't really an academic powerhouse. You either in the old days, you learned religion or the other days right. it was social club. Okay. But it wasn't academic. And so we're going to revert back to that. And you either get into a university today on two, three criteria. One, you have some athletic skill. Two, you claim that you're a member of a marginalized community. Or C, you are well-connected. You know the president, the dean, the provost is your uncle. Your parents gave 10 million bucks. You're a legacy or they're eighth in the family to go, whatever. But it's not going to be meritocratic. That's what I'm trying to say academically. You just right. don't, you know, you don't grow up in Des Moines, Iowa and on a farm and you get a perfect SAT and straight A's and you're a white male and you get into Harvard. It's not going to happen. You either got to be a marginalized person, quote unquote, or you have to be a, an athlete or you have to have some leverage pool from either money or contacts or alumni legacy. OK, so that's what we're going to do. And. The second thing that this guy points out is that's already happening, but people are still going to Stanford and Harvard, and they're harder to get in than ever. And so he's making the argument that it's a cattle brand still, not because it's a sign that a person is highly educated. He said there's enough graduates that leave these places with these degrees that are clearly not educated, that the right. names of those universities for a variety, whether they're athletes that leave or whether they're legacies that leave or whether they're marginalized people, whatever the reason was, they were admitted without the standard criteria or they didn't achieve the standard uh, criteria in, in, the, in the four years they were there, that the academic reputation is no longer there. And, and a BA from Yale, does, Yale or a law school degree from Yale doesn't mean you're going to be a top lawyer. So then he says, well, what's the attraction? And the attraction used to be the fallback was, well, you're going to go there and you're going to meet Bill Gates's nephew. And Mark Zuckerberg, is he, his cousin is there. And you're going to have be a roommate with Alan Dershowitz's son. You see what I mean? You're going to meet right. all these movers and shakers. So that's why you're going to go to Harvard or Yale or Stanford. Are you going to meet Chelsea Clinton? Are you going to meet the Obama girl, girls? The point is you're going to make social networking contacts that are going to pay off big time when you graduate. And somebody's going to say, hey, I got a startup in Silicon Valley. My dad and a bunch of people are financing. I, You want to join? And you're going to get right. that contact. But. And this is what was, I thought, kind of disturbing about the article. He suggests hinting me, not explicitly, but if you make let in all these people that aren't legacies and well-connected and made the maybe even the requirements, then you're going to lose that as well. Because who, if you're not going to let in the kids of the elite, right, with all the connection to, at the same degree as you did in the past, well, then you're losing that attraction to that university for a lot of people. In other words, if you're going to right. let your child in and there's a lot of people who don't have those contacts 
or money or there's a lot of athletes, then the number of people that used to pay off is if you looked at education, which I think is terrible, but if you looked at it as an investment for a career, just a career or compensation, then that attraction is going to be lost. And so what the ultimate takeaway as he's dissecting the new Harvard president and what her he believes her ambitions will result in is that eventually these schools, even with these multi-billion dollar endowments, will not be attractive places to go because half the people will say, you're not going to be, get a rigorous education there. And when you leave, employers are going to know it and you're going to pay a right. lot of money for a mediocre degree and you'd be better off to go to you, you know, to University of Ohio, you can better go off to Ohio State or Baylor or somewhere or Texas Christian because you'll get a better education. And then B, for the other people said, yeah, but there's still, I'll still meet, you know, Steve Jobs' niece and I'm still going to, right. to, to meet the Google people's. No, you're not because there's not enough of them on campus because there's so much competition to get that legacy billet that it's not going to be the the laboratory of future aggrandizement. It, and so they're not going to have that appeal. It's a pretty cynical view because what the article is saying is it's essentially now a cattle brand. It's no longer equivalent. And this gets back to our own conversation that you and I had that I've talked to more than one person in Silicon Valley and, and you kind of laugh and the other woman has laughed too, a, a woman. And they basically said that there are people in Silicon Valley that no longer trust, uh, the degrees that come out of, say, Stanford University or UC, right. UC Berkeley. They don't believe that the BA or the MA or even the PhD, uh, is proof positive that that's student has the skills that one would have assumed they had in 1980 or 1990. And therefore, for them to hire that person, they're either going to have to offer them an SAT standardized test, right. or, or if they're in coding, they're going to give their own specialized coding test before they will hire them. And they're, well, not, but, going to, they're not going to talk about it. Yeah, Victor, if I may, layer it onto that, on top of that, and beside it is this new study by the uh, National Association of Scholars on, on, on the, this collision between DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, with STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, and how DEI has swamped STEM. And, uh, uh, and this is a broad study of, of many colleges and universities. So you've got the branding problem. You've got the DEI weakening these kind of, you know, the coders, the, 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 the folks you've talked to who are looking for folks that have applicable knowledge and things like science, technology, et cetera. And, and now even broader than the, the Ivy League and the, the cattle brands, these other alternatives are are themselves being weakened. So I don't know who's going to not have to be tested by employers at some point post-college. No, the, same, the same thing. And there's another collusion. I mean, we're talking about mass suicide on part of these schools, that they're going over the cliff at full speed. And I think they know they are and they can't stop it because if they were to stop it, they'd have a riot on their hands or social turmoil that they couldn't they couldn't deal with. But the second thing is, 
every faculty member that I've ever met in my entire life, that's no exaggeration, at one time or the other has bitched about administrators. And it always went like this. You know, I used to know Dean so-and-so and and Provost so-and-so. Man, now they're into empire building. They never teach. They don't do any research. Why are we got so many administrators? And then they'll quote a data like the CSU uh, system, the largest college system in the world, 3% increase over 25 years in faculty, I think 212% increase in administrators. So what they always say is we're creating these administrators and they don't do anything. They don't teach. They don't do research. They just administrate, but they create problems or they say they are intrusive. They bother the faculty. Well, that, that was nothing. Nothing until this latest spate of diversity, equity, inclusion uh, administrators, because they not only not do nothing, they do something. And what they do is they get involved in hiring and say, you know what, we have a plan now that every new applicant is going to have to give a diversity, equity, inclusion statement. And when we read that and we approve that at the at the dean or provost level, I don't care if you're if your applicant that you want to hire has written two books and he's a marvelous teacher, I didn't like his diversity, equity, inclusion statement, his commitment. It wasn't there. Or uh, they're going to call up a faculty member and say, you know what? We have across the curriculums diversity, equity, inclusion standards for all syllabi. And your course on the Civil War or your course in introductory chemistry does not reflect a reading list or a type of teaching that advances diversity, equity, inclusion. These are going to be people now dictating to faculty who are not nearly as well-trained and have not published much and have not had much classroom experience. And they're going to be lecturing distinguished scholars and professors about what they can and can't do in the classroom. And then after they grade, as I said earlier, they're going to run some statistics and they're going to say, we've got a problem here at Brown. We've got a problem here at Duke. We've got a problem here at Amherst because we have a particular faculty that again and again are grading severely people of color or marginalized people or women, whatever the group is. And that is an enormous overhead. And to pay for that overhead, the faculty who bitch are going to say, Wow, I'm going to, I'm a Renaissance lit professor and I'm going to retire next year and they're not going to replace me. I just got word from the dean. In other words, I spent 40 years building the Renaissance department in art, philosophy and history here. And we have, I have about 30 students I trained in P- I, I was their PhD advisor and they're all ready to assume a position and I could hire any of them and they've eliminated them. They're going to break up the position. And yet they just hired five diversity, equity, inclusion. So what are you going to do then when that traditional lament about administrative bloat collides with the fact that the latest surge in administrative bloat is all on the woke side? Right. And so what do you do if you're a professor, if you're woke? Hmm. On the one hand, administrators siphon off all of our scarce funding. And on the other hand, uh, I agree they're woke. So what will I do? Does that mean that that they won't monitor my class or they won't monitor my grading or they won't monitor my hiring because they're woke? No, that means they will. 
that, but it only means I can't criticize their will because I'm woke. And we'll see how long that tension lasts, but it's already starting to fray. And I guess if I was going to write an article and I said, I'm the uh, chairman of Beijing University and electrical engineering, computer engineering, calculus, physics, and I want to make sure the United States is a permanent second place to us, and I want to destroy their universities. What should I do? The top universities. And somebody would say, well, you've got to get them sold on the commissar idea. The commissar idea right. is the only thing that matters. What the Soviet Union did, that's what Mao did. That's how Mao wrecked our country. Remember what he did. He made ideological concerns a necessity to be hired. He made the curriculum reflect ideology. He made the results biased by ideology. And out of that, we've lost a whole generation of meritocracy. That's what you've got to do. And you've got to create racial, ethnic, social, cultural, class tensions within the university against this. And then it'll be in a permanent state of turmoil and it will lose its commitment to meritocratic excellence. And then we will be able to design better airplanes and rockets and mass transit and batteries and solar. And I think that's kind of ironic because that's what we're right. doing. Well, Victor, we're, we're kind of way over, but I still have to ask you a question about something that happened on this date, December 22nd. You're going to be limited to just a couple of minutes answer. And we're going to get to that right after this final important message. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So this podcast's happy home is just the news, John.com, John Solomon's website. And this is the, I think, 78th, thereabouts, uh, anniversary of uh, General Anthony McAuliffe responding to the German request that the American troops who were under siege at in Bastogne that they surrender. And he, his infamous and famous response was nuts. So Victor uh, Bastogne, the Battle of the Bulge, lives uh, high in American minds of those who you know love their country, follow Amer you know, World War II history, military history. But it's something that really shouldn't have happened. The American troops should not have been in a position to have been under siege there. So I, I'd like to get your quick view on why did Bastogne happen? Who's there's some I'm going to put it this way. Who's to blame that that the Americans were put in such a tenuous position that the Germans uh, almost broke through uh, uh, the Ardennes forest late in the war? Well, I wrote about this in the Second World War. So, I mean, got to put, put yourself very quickly. It's December, mid-December, and it's cold, and you're on the Belgian border, 
and the French border and the huge ally brilliant move toward the Rhine River is stalled. And it's stalled because of your supply lines have lengthened all the way back to the D-Day beaches. You never really freed up the, the major ports. They were sabotaged by the Germans or they're still hold, held by the Germans in nihilistic strongholds. Or you diverted uh, enormous amount of, of allied manpower and material for this crackpot Montgomery idea of Operation Market Garden, and you never got the final bridge at Arnheim, and you wasted all of that, and, and you shut down George Patton's Third Army basically in September, first week of September, when it was, I don't know what it would have done, but it was ready to go across the line. Okay, you're stalemated. And you're trying to regroup and it's cold and you've got rookie divisions and areas where you don't think they would ever invade. They did go through the Ardennes in 1940 when they invaded France, but they wouldn't do it again in winter. It's, it's about, you know, I think Baston is 1600 feet above sea level. It's kind of like the Sierra foothills. It's not very, it's, it's not an alpine 7000, but it's difficult terrain and it's not conducive for heavy tanks in winter on icy. So they thought it, they put green, green, two green divisions there, but in a hundred mile sector. And Hitler was told not to do it. Not, they had heard from the ultra that he was massing. There was radio silence. They couldn't account for certain divisions. There was 250,000 under, under Mantelful, who was a pretty good you know, he was kind of a cosmopolitan general. He spoke fluent English. So they were poised to strike on December 16th. We didn't know about it, Jack, because we couldn't have air reconnaissance. It was snowy. It was overcast. They they observed strict radio silence. They they We picked up what we wanted to hear, that the German high command didn't approve of it. It was kind of the, the tragedy of von Lundstedt that he was against it, but it was called the von Lundstedt offensive because he was senior commander in the West. And they blew across on December 16th. And the idea was to cross the Meuse River and get to Antwerp and cut the Allies in half and destroy that port so they wouldn't have any material and then sue for peace. It's a crackpot idea. It would drain all the reserves in Germany that were necessary for the defense of the homeland, but nobody thought they'd do it. And they gave they spearheaded it by, you know, people like Colonel Piper, who was a fanatic Nazi and SS divisions, and they burst across with Tiger, and there was no stopping them. And they thought they would get the fuel necessary, the gasoline. Remember, the German tanks did run on gasoline, just like ours. And they, they in some areas, the bulge was 50, 60 miles, and they destroyed two American divisions. It was the co most costliest land battle in Europe for the Americans. And they had to do something. And Matthew, Maxwell Taylor, the head of the 101st, was in the United States on a, on a conference, military conference. Uh, they cracked the seam between the 1st and 3rd Army. It wasn't in Montgomery. You know, the third and uh, Montgomery's force and the first army and Patton was way down a hundred miles away, ready to go on offensive when the weather cleared and it looked pretty bad. And Bastogne was this nexus because there were four or five roads. I've been to Bastogne and you can really see that the roads from all different directions converse, uh, converge in Bastogne. So the idea was they would swarm in and take Bastogne. 
and then they would have control to direct the offensive as it spread out uh, toward the Moose River. And of course, the Americans knew that, and they had a, very, a skeleton engineer crew, a, skele uh, a skeleton crew, and they were racing to get the 82nd and the 101st there. And they did, but on they were without supply. They had no air support. They were wildly outnumbered, and the Germans were fanatically confident that this was the final chance they would have to be on the offensive. And they sent them this December 22nd very Germanic note saying, you know, the tides of war have changed. You have no choice. We're going to annihilate you. And the brigadier general in charge of the 101, the 101st, General McAuliffe, just he saw it, he threw it in the trash and said, ah, nuts. And he apparently did that all the time, said nuts, nuts, nuts. And somebody picked it up and said, ah, that's a good reply. So they gave it to the German Envoy, envoys, and they said, nuts, what does that mean? And then they unleashed their firepower, and they should have just gone around Boston and reconnected with the proper roads. But Germans being Germans, they wanted to take the objective that was assigned, and they wasted that whole week, and they couldn't take it. And meanwhile, George Patton said to I, and he, he this is very important, very quickly, he knew that this was going to happen. Don't ask me how he did, but he knew that uh, they were too spread out. The Germans had too much reserves that were unaccounted for. The green divisions were all that was between them and getting back into Belgium. He knew that they might go to the Antwerp, and he had, had a plan uh, to make a sharp 90-degree turn. If... Mm. Ordered. So he went to this famous conference at Verdun and Ike, and everybody had their head in their hands. And what are we going to do? We have no reinforcements. We can't get these troops back up there. It's out in, up in the wilds of the Ardennes, and they're just killing us. And Patton said, I can move two divisions in 24 hours, 30,000 men in the snow, and I can be there in two days. This is crazy. Shut up, George. I'm, I'm kind of exaggerating. Right. But he went out and he phoned and the coordinate the code. And that's exactly what they were prepared to do. It was his finest hour. They made a sharp turn north, uh, northward, and they got there in time to save Boston. And then almost magically, and Patton was always having his weathermen pray to God for a change in weather, the weather right. cleared. And then the skies came open, and you know what happens with air supremacy, the P-47s, they just began to to really take their toll on the German advance. It ran out of fuel. It didn't get the fuel depots. And then Bastogne had is iconic because that was the one hurdle that slowed down the progress. In other words, had they taken that three or four days earlier, they would have been on their way. They probably would have got a fuel depot and made yeah. it not all the way to Antwerp, but maybe it was a stupid idea in the beginning, but it would have caused a lot more damage. And the final fill-up to the whole thing is this was the tragedy of George Patton, that he understood that the way to destroy a bulge was not to go back at the tip of it and slowly push it back to the normal right. line, but was to cut it off at its base and then trap a quarter million Germans and encircle and destroy them. So when he he said something to the effect that this is good, 
you know, you don't want to lose two divisions, but I'm going to, instead of having me go to the stone, let me go right across the, the wide swath and you and we'll have all of our remaining cut off that bulge. And right. that will end the war because the, Germany's empty. And they lost, the sad thing is they lost more total casualties after Bastogne than before because they didn't get the bulge back until mid to late January. And it was horrible fighting because the Germans were backpedaling, mining, destroying artillery. And when they finally, so they lost all, they lost a terrible amount of material, manpower, death, destruction to get that bulge back. Well, I think they could have cut it off. And then, of course, when they crossed the Rhine in March, everybody was shocked that there was no, I mean, they, once they got across the Rhine, they just went wild right. in a, April, late March and April, because there were no reserves, because the crazy, insane, unhinged Hitler had drained Germany of manpower, infantry and armor to go into this offensive, which failed and lost in his last uh, pockets right. reserves of manpower and tiger tanks and air support, et cetera. So they, that was really the end of the war. Once you defeated the Germans in the bulge and you finally pushed it back and you were across the Rhine because in the West, um, there was, there was nothing happening. The people in the West wanted the war to end after the bulge failed on the German side. And they were very, there wasn't very many of them left that were battle ready after the bulge losses, but they did want to, if you're a German soldier, you want to surrender to the British, Canadians, or right. Americans. You don't want to. Right. So the yeah, idea end up want, in Siberia. Right. Yeah, you don't want to deal with the Russians. So there was this idea that, wow, let's just collapse. And not that they didn't fight and kill a lot of Americans in late March and April and early May, but they didn't fight like they did on the Eastern. And Patton, that was the tragedy of Patton. He you read, you know, War as I Knew It, and you look at Martin Blumenson's The Patent Papers, and you start to see that beneath this show-off, narcissistic, blowhard, you know, uh, pearl-handled, whether they were ivory or pearl, uh, guns and the shiny helmet and the movie pad, all that crap, you see a lifetime of discipline and military studies, uh, a fluency, near fluency in French, uh, a desire to read classical military history from Clausewitz to Caesar, uh, a brilliant mind, uh, a record of pretty much continual success in North Africa, in Sicily. And when he failed, it was usually because he was right and his commanders didn't want to take a risk on him. And right. then this final great victory at the bulge of saving the stone, which could have been even greater had they listened to him. And then the, the initial disgrace, final disgrace in the post-war era where he said some things that were prescient, i.e. we freed, basically we freed Eastern Europe from the Nazis. That's why we went to war. At least Britain started the war. And now we've guaranteed that it's in the hands of similar fascists called the communists. Right. And so that got him relieved, and he ended up with a miserable death. And uh, Eisenhower and Bradley were the standard reference of military history for a half century, and their their subordinates wrote history. And, and when you read about Patton, except, you know, for uh, 
few, uh, Ladislav Farago or Dieste or finally Martin Blumenson, you finally get the truth after now Eisenhower's gone and Bradley's gone and Hodges is gone and their lieutenant colonels are gone and their colonels are gone and their right. and the army war. You finally get a picture that the most uncouth and maybe unhinged officer was actually the most sober and judicious and capable military mind that the Americans have produced right. since William Tecumseh Sherman. Yeah, great warrior. By the way, Victor, I, I love I, one of my favorite war movies is Battleground. And that's a great scene because the Germans come and they, it's Van Johnson and George Murphy and others are waiting for the uh, answer to come back, the eventual nuts answers. But George Murphy blowing smoke rings in the face of the Nazi uh, uh, Jeep driver sitting there. It's just one of my favorite. Little yeah. And movies. it was at 19, was it six middle 60s? Uh, with Henry Fonda and Robert Shaw. Uh, I think yeah. That, 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 yeah. Uh, it wasn't as good Battle of the Bulge. It was all about fuel, and they didn't get the fuel in time. But yeah, my, one of my it, favorite actors was in that, Dana. Who? Dana and a minor point. Dana, uh, role, Dana, Dana Andrews. Oh, I love Dana Andrews. Oh, my gosh. He was terrific. He was, Especially he was the colonel. He Robert was? Shaw was. Yeah, he was. Robert Shaw, oh. as I remember, he was that German. Uh, I think he. I think they had a name. It wasn't Piper, but he was considered one of the you know the fanatical nazis oh, the, oh the okay right or right panzer but it was a, it was henry fonda was you know he was henry fonda it was a, it was it wasn't a great movie but it was another treatment of it yeah, no, it's, it's well, it's a movie. Anyone that likes World War II movies is, has got to yeah. have seen uh, that movie uh, um, a few times. Well, Victor Hey, we're we are way over, but you know who's who's going to complain when you get an hour plus of Victor's wisdom. So thanks to everyone who who does listen. Thanks to those who go on uh, Apple Podcasts to to rank the show, rate it, and to leave comments. We read them all, especially those that say "Shut up, Fowler." But here's one that doesn't say "Shut up, Fowler." It's um, it's by Old A U L D Monroe. And it's titled HDF Keto Forever. And those are the initials, Humphrey D.F. Keto, who was uh, Victor, talked about uh, Keto uh, Classicist uh, a couple of episodes ago. Here's, here's the note. Carry on, Victor. Love listening. I've read most of your books, and I'm happy to have met you several times last December with Andrew Roberts and in 2003 or so during an ISI presentation with my teacher, Andrew Tady. Tady. Hello again. Was delighted to hear you mention Professor Keto. I'm reading, coincidentally, Greek Tragedy, 1939 by Keto. Yeah, unpack my Greek books and have them as a goal to read. Presently studying Italian and modern Greek, NT and Xenophon and Homer next. Have about 40 Greek books, 30 Latin books. Anyway, Old Monroe, uh, uh, very happy to be a uh, happy listener. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, Victor. Everybody should read Kiddo, HD Kiddos, the Greeks, HDF Kiddo, the Greeks. It's a. Uh masterful little introduction degrees he also wrote a great book as i think i mentioned about traveling up in northwestern greece a travel book and uh, i i i took a, two courses from him but i uh, in greek when he was in his 80s in, in athens right and, and uh 
I don't think he liked me, but I sure learned a lot from him on Greek grammar and and uh, translation mm-hmm. and things. He once said to me, uh, I tried not to use notes or uh, vocabulary list. I would just read the Greek. I would really work hard. And he turned to me and said, so you don't think you need to have a vocabulary list? And I said, no, I don't. I think I can read it. And he said, and you think that I should know that? <laughs> and I said, no, it's up to you. <laughs> and uh, then he said something that was very funny. He said, and you're the one that doesn't think I'm going to make it up the stairs. Right. And, <laughs> and he gave me a B plus. I th- and I thought I had all A's, but he gave me a B plus. And he would have a five five stairways up to this fifth floor. And he was very elderly here. Boom, 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 boom. And then we hear... <sighs> And I should have been empathetic, but I was a smart-ass 19, 20-year-old, and I said to one student, I don't think he's going to make it this time. And when he got it, and he remembered that. But he was was a very, he was a humanitarian. He was a non-Oxford Cambridge academic. In other words, I think he was from Bristol. Right. He he wrote a good uh, commentary on Sophocles Ajax and... I liked him. I liked his wife. Those were good years. I was very fortunate. I, I, I want I want to stop now, but I had very, for a guy who came out of a farm from Central Salma, I was, I had some of the greatest classicists as teachers and that were there in that generation. I was very fortunate at the American School of Classical Studies. Yeah. Stanford. Well, so did the, so did the students that had you, Victor. So now we, we've got to just say one last thing to our listeners. And for, I'm going to say thank you, Victor, for all the wisdom you shared today. But hey, Y'all have a very Merry Christmas, and thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Victor Davis Hanson Show. Merry Christmas, everybody. 